Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Anit, daf kaftet, page 29. We are in the final stretch of this Masachet, this complicated, very brief, very complicated, intense Masachet, I find. Um, Yardena, you might disagree with me whether it's actually intense. The learning of it has not been um, the same kind of challenge, let's say, that I think we found in Masachet Erevin, or Shkalim, but it's been um, the the content, the the material itself is a lot of food for thought, a lot of introspection, reflection, and this day this daf is no exception. Um, we begin. I'm beginning very close to the top of the daf. That rather. Then on the ninth of Av, it was decreed. And remember, this is a historical fast. That is the you know that's the topic of the whole parak. So. Here we're going to talk about Tishabov and what happened on Tishabov, um, you know, in beside the obviously the destruction of the temple itself. <laughs> Excuse me. But Tishabav, Nigzar they were decreed that they would not enter Eretz Israel. Minalan, Dichtiv, Vayuba Chodesh Arishon Bishnashni, Shinit Bachad Lachodesh, Hukama Mishkan. So how do we know that they were, that it was decreed? A, that it was decreed that they wouldn't enter Eretz Yisrael, but specifically on the ninth of Av. So the, the Gemara here explains that in the book of Shemot, in Exodus, when it talks about the time of the um, establishment of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, then we get some actual dates. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month. right? And then, mishkan. In the first year, Moshe made, in the first year meaning after leaving Egypt, Moshe made the Mishkan. Shni'ah hekim Moshe at the Mishkan. And then by the time we get to the second year, Moshe establishes the Mishkan for, I guess, for function. V'shalach meraglim. And that's when he sends out the spies. So now we're in the book of Bamidbar already in terms of the sending out of the spies. We know this narrative. V'ktiv, uktiv, v'hi b'shna shenit b'chodesh ha'shenit b'shrim b'chodesh na'ala ha'anan me'al Mishkan ha'idut. And there, from the book of Numbers, in chapter 10, it says, in the second year, in the second month, so again, the biblical text is giving us specific dates, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud went up, meaning it was removed, from the Mishkan. And then, Uchtiv, we've got another verse from Numbers, from that same chapter. They traveled three days. And what is Rabbi Yechama Barchani says that on the very same day, they turned away from God, meaning they were tense, really, about leaving that area where they'd been settled for, for Matan Torah, for the giving of, of the Torah at Arsinai. So we're talking about the Asaf Suf. This is a long in, in you know, long conversation about the Asaf Suf to begin with, the multitudes that were there with B'nai Israel, right? And they they weren't doing so well, right? They had a tremendous um, desire or lust, and B'nai Israel also wept. And we get another verse, Uchtiv, Ad Chodesh Yamim. So we're told specifically in the next chapter, really, or the same chapter as this previous verse, for an entire month, so that all of this is happening, you know, in close proximity, but it's also taking time. So now we can count that out, meaning we've got 29 days of eating meat, 
in response to their complaining and everything that took place on the 22nd of Sivan. Right, if we count out from Matatorah, from the giving of the Torah, and we count out these days. So the Gemara has done it for us, right? You can take a pencil, you know, a quick pencil and piece of paper and, and line up the numbers um, and line up the verses, these specific dates, and it, it does indeed work out. And then, so then they travel to Chatzirot, and then Miriam gets Tarat, right? She gets Tarat, she, the the... I'm assuming a little bit too, I might be assuming a little bit too much knowledge here, depending on who you are, where you're coming from. But this is the narrative of the book of Bamidbar. And it is worth reading that inside, you know, the numbers, the stories of exactly how they, the journeys and the travails. So Miriam was set up, was, was closed out of the camp for seven days. And then they didn't leave again until she came back into the count, into the camp rather. So now we've got these seven days that they're in Chatzirot, which brings us to the 29th of Sivan. And then they send out the, the spies immediately after. So the presumption then is, the Gemara presumption on the biblical text is that the sending out of the spies took place immediately just thereafter, the 20, or on the 29th of Sivan, before they start traveling again. And so then we've got a breaker that tells us that this is exactly the math, right? That on the 29th of Sivan, Moshe sent out the spies. And we have a verse, you know, again, a biblical verse that's going to help us here. They traveled spying out the land for 40 days. So, but the way they figured it out is that it wasn't really 40 days. It was 40 days minus one. Very often, and we saw this back at Masachat Shabbat, where we're talking about 40 malachot, it's arba'im chaser achat. It's 39 malachot, right? There's 39 malachot, it's not 40. So here too, when it says 40, it, ta- it takes one away, right? The idea that 40 really is, we should really pay attention to the fact that it's a rounded number and really it means 39. So then if you count that out, meaning... The days, the the couple of days that were left in the month of Sivan, the entire month of Tammuz, the eight days of Av, and then, lo and behold, you've got your 39 days, and then the next day is Tisha B'Av. Amar Abaye, Tammuz, Dahai, Shata, Meluya, Dekhtiv, Kra, Alei, Moed, Moed, Lishpor, Bechurai. The question is, how, is, is Tammuz uh, a full month or a Chaser month? Meaning, is it a 30-day month or a 29-month? And and that would make a difference whether we're now talking about the ninth of Av or we're going to be talking about, I guess, what would be the tenth of Av. Um, I suppose here, Dan, it's convenient that we already learned Rosh Hashanah, Masachat Rosh Hashanah, to understand the whole question of what's a a full or an empty or a lacking kind of month. Um, okay. In any case, all of this is decided that it's you know that the whole question of the the days of how many days there are to that Rosh Chodesh. It, it lines it up to make it to make it very clear that this happened, uh, that they were not allowed to go into the land of Israel on the ninth of Av. And then further, we've got another verse: Uchtiv, So that everybody they lift up their voice and they cry and they weep. And what was this night that they were doing this kind of public mourning? It was a night of Tisha B'av. Do 
is you are weeping for no good reason. You are weeping, you know, in, in your grievance that wasn't really a legitimate weaving, weeping. So therefore, I will turn this into a night of weeping for all generations, which is kind of an interesting uh, retribution, so to speak. Um, so anyway, that sets us up with the, t- the ninth of Av as we know it's a day that's a bad day for the Jews in Jewish history. And so then we've got these extra things added on, you know, what else happened that was bad at this time. And we've got a very quick, I'm just going to go through this very quickly and then turn it over to you, Yardena, that we get another list of what happened on this day. So first of all, the temple was destroyed the first time on Tisha B'Av. Sorry. Rav Tabachim, Evan Melch Bavel, Yushalayim, Vayisrof, and Beit Hashem. It gives us a whole opening, the opening, uh, what, what valley, I guess, from the from the captain of the guard, that's Nevuzara Dan, who's under King Nevuchadnezzar, who comes and they, this is when they start to destroy the temple itself, meaning the first temple before the Babylonian captivity. And again, right, the, these verses, one is in Malachim and one is in Yermiao, and they basically are the same content, but they word, they give us the date to understand that this, the first temple was destroyed on Tisha B'Av, and then we also, there's a whole discussion that follows this in the Gemara to say, well, but maybe it was a seventh or maybe it was a tenth. I mean, there's a, like, why do we, why are we stuck on the ninth? And the Gemara is, you know, gives us a good amount of um, fodder, I guess, to say that we could examine this into, we could learn it into a different day. But the bottom line is, and then I'm skipping a tiny bit in the Gemara, v'chi'i samuch l'chashecha etzitu bo or. On the ninth day, as it's getting dark, they set fire to it, and it burned the whole next day. And we've got a verse in Yirmiyahu talking about exactly this, that the temple was just, you know, the destruction of the temple through fire is a pretty, it's it's graphic and it's in our face, and it's also kind of indisputed when that really took place. Uh, you know, whether whether the fast should be on the ninth or it should be on the tenth, that's discussed. You know, do we should we fast after the after the completion of this burning? So, all of this text is, you know, very much about establishing the calendar, and it's likewise very much about establishing a calendar that was already known to the people who are doing the establishing. I don't think, you know, your data, we talk about sussing, sussing out. I don't think there's any sussing out here. I think everybody knows everything that happened on Tisha B'Av, and it's being, you know, codified here, so to speak, so that nobody can, nobody can forget it, nobody can forsake it. It's the, this is the history, and, you know, now go have Tisha B'Av. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting to see, you know, that when it comes to sometimes halacha, like yesterday when we talked about the tefillah piece, that it sort of needed to be sussed out. Uh, that here, when it comes to the events of Tisha B'Av, it's just everyone accepts what it is, and there's really no question about what those five events are. I'm guessing that there was that this was kept, meaning yeah. I'm guessing that that people kept it year in year out, so there wasn't they didn't have to like remember it, figure out what used to be done. You know, maybe they didn't keep it in exactly the way that every other year did, but I, I feel like the it was such a momentous, terrible event that it kind of like burned the hole in the calendar. 
Um, I'm going to move on now to the fifth uh, event that's mentioned in the Mishnah, which is Nachor Shahair, that the city was plowed under. Tanya was taught in a brisa. Uh, now, I'll never be able to say this correctly, but it's talking about Tyrannus Rufus, right? Tyrannus Harasha Etaychal. So when uh, Tyrannus Rufus basically plowed under the ruins of the Heichal, the Roman government basically put a decree about Rabban Gamliel, and here we're talking about Rabban Gamliel II, um, remember who's in Yavna, also that he's going to be put to death. So a certain Roman official comes and says in the study hall, the one with the prominent note is wanted, the one with the prominent nose is wanted. So it's always interesting that, like, first of all, this official doesn't mention him by name. He gives a physical uh, description. Description. Um, we would look at this actually as something that maybe is not so nice. Um, but actually, I, what some of them have first explained is, is that actually like a well-formed nose, you know, it's not saying that he had a big nose, but that he had like sort of a well-formed and beautiful nose. Or that it's saying that it's, you know, something he was a, a beauty because he was sort of the sage of his generation. So just to know that it, it seems like it's insulting to us. Um, but also we have these interesting gemars that sort of give, uh, you know, physical descriptions of some of this, of, of Chazal. But again, here I'm not so sure that this is actually meant to be taken literally. So what happens? So Rebbe Gamliel understands that this, they're talking about him and he goes to hide. The Roman official goes to him secretly. And so he says to him, if you save me from being executed, if I save you from being executed, will you bring me to the world to come? Amarle, Rebbe Gamliel answers him, right? He says, hey, he says, yes, I will. Amarle, Ishtabali, right? So he says to him, he says, swear to me. Ishtabale, Rebbe Gamliel swears to him. And so what happens is that the official, he basically goes onto a roof and he falls off and dies. Now, the idea here is that apparently there was a sort of a, a tradition that um, if, you know, the uh, if the Romans had sort of decreed that something was going to happen that day and one of their own dies, it was sort of a bad omen. And then they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't do it anymore. So, you know, they, they would basically sort of uh, they would re- reverse the decree. And so then what happens? Um, so since there was this right, this this uh, there was this tradition that if the decree was issued and one of them dies, they annulled their decree. Yatsta bat called the Amra, and then a heavenly voice came forth and says, Adon Zemizuman Lachaye Oram Haba. Right. And it says that, you know, he is going to be um uh you know, he will he will be part of Chaye Oram Haba. Now, what's interesting about this is what story should this remind you of? Um, is uh, you know, the story about Rabbi Hanina ben Tadram. So that is, you know, Bur- Rabbi Mayer's father-in-law. Um, it's a very famous story. Uh, it's in uh, it's in Avodazara. Um, and he, you know, he's one of the like 10 Asuri, you know, Asuri Malchut. He's one of the 10 martyrs. And, you know, he was the whole story that he was wrapped in a Torah scroll um, and, and wool was put on him. Um, and he refused to sort of get to open his mouth to have the fire going in. And the executioner removes the wool. And he also sort of gets himself um, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, he also gets himself a place in Olam Haba. 
So I think it's interesting that this story is sort of like the opposite of that story, right? Like it's the opposite in the sense of this is a story where they're both stories where non-Jews sort of secure for themselves some type of, um, you know, getting to be in the world to come, right? Um, but um, but here, one of them, the, the, the sage gets saved. And then the other one in our case, and in the other story in Avodazar, the sage does not get saved. It's, I believe it's Avodazar Yudzayin. So I thought that was interesting. Like this story is not as famous um, and it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's the opposite. It has a very different, um, it sort of has a very different ending. And we sort of don't know anything else, uh, you know, about it. Like there's no other, uh, there's nothing else about it, basically. Like it sort of just moves on from that, uh, you know, just sort of moves on from that story. Um, and anything you want to say about that before I get to the next really interesting story there? Um, I just want to comment that like, and at this far remove, right? These are stories and these are, you know, powerful, inspirational, you know, whatever. And yet there's something kind of very dire and dark to me about about what's really going on at this time. You know, the if you were alive at this time and the, the life and death issues that are, you know, will you live? Will you be killed? Will the next guy over is going to be killed and that's going to save your life? And now you're going to say, oh, he got like it's 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 grim i think it's it's very grim but again i you know just look at that gemara it's avodazara yud zayin amud bet all the way to yud chet amud aleph and it's the same language it's yatsta bakhol like the bakhol comes out there in avodazara it says both rabbi hanina ben trajon and the uh the um the executioner both get you know olam haba so i just think they're two interesting stories to compare to each other with very different outcomes um, and I agree with you. I think these stories also have a piece of like uh, theodicy in them. They're sort of discussing, you know, what happens to, to the people who enact the decrees and think about what it means that the, the when we say, particularly the story in Avodah Zarah, here it's a much more believable story because we're saying that the person who saved Ravan Gamliel, he, he earns a place in the world to come. The story in Avodah Zarah is much more difficult because it's sort of saying the person who is part of the killing actually earns a part in Olam Haba. Yes, he does something good for him because he sort of, uh, you know, he increases the flame, um, you know, uh, but but it's, I don't know, I, it, they're very interesting stories that I think are sort of, ex, you know, trying to explore a little bit, like understanding all of the terrible events that happened during that time of Roman persecution. And then finally, we have another brace here, which I want to share. So when the, the temple was destroyed the first time, right? There were groups of young Kohanim. That's what always the Pirche Kohanim are called. Um, and they, uh, you know, they got together with the, with the key of the sanctuary in their hands. They went up to the roof of the sanctuary. And they said, right? Since we weren't privileged to really take care of the temple, in other words, it got destroyed under their watch. Let the keys be handed to you. They threw the keys towards heaven. And something like the palm of the ham emerged from heaven. And took it from them. The Kohanim jumped and fell into the flames. Right, that were basically burning the Beit Hamikdash. 
And then they basically quote a pasuk from Yeshayahu um, from chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, that sort of alludes to this, right? That says, Masage chizayon malach efog ki alit kolan leganot, right? A prophecy about the Valley of Vision. It's talking about Jerusalem. What has happened to you now that you have all ascended to the rooftops? To suod milea ir homia kriya aliza chalalecha lo chalili cher below meiti machama. Formerly filled with commotion and joyous city, your slain are not victims of the sword nor casualties of war. It's also said, and this is a few psukim later, right, regarding to Hashem, this is in uh, the same chapter of Yeshayahu, chapter 22, verse 5. He wails and laments concerning the mountain of Zion, talking about God. Um, and so, uh, you know, that it's now desolate. So I think this is also a very interesting brisa for two reasons. One is, you know, we always talk about the difference between the first Beit HaMikdash and the second Beit HaMikdash. That sort of the second Beit HaMikdash, uh, it did not have, like the Aaron was not there, the Ephod was not there. It didn't sort of have the same connection to God that the first one did. And this brisa sort of has this narrative there that shows it's like very deliberate. Like at the destruction of the end of the first Beit HaMikdash, like that privilege, that connection was literally taken away by the hands of God. And the other thing I think to look at the story is, you know, this is, I think, an early story is sort of, you know, suicide at a time of like a Kiddush Hashem, right? That the Jews are undergoing something terrible. And in, it's not praised here. It's sort of said more matter of fact, but it's described how basically the Kohanim kill themselves here. Um, it's interesting to me that it's with no judgment. Um, maybe it's praising it in the sense that it, it's giving a pasuk that alludes to it. It's certainly not critical of it, but, you know, just pay attention to the story that this is sort of a, a early mention of sort of, you know, this type of, of prototypical story where, you know, sort of uh, Jews are undergoing something bad um, and, and there's sort of a deliberate choice, uh, you know, to, to commit suicide. Oh boy, I wanted to just add the final note, which is really about um, how we, the the end of the daf gets into how we practice dish above nowadays. And there's a very intensive discussion about laundry and how much laundry and where to do laundry and what not to do laundry for and so on. And I, I do think that a good amount of what the Gemara's discussion is, is not so practical for us today because we relate to learn, you know, the idea of something being laundered. We take that as a given, right? People do not go and put on dirty clothes today in this day and age. I mean, not in the Western world, not in, I can't imagine that any of our co-learners are, are, you know, in violation of this norm that I'm, you know, citing now. So that does change, I think, the the very um, detailed description of the Gemara about, lang about, the, about the laundry itself. But the point, I think, still holds, right? This idea that there's a, when, when there's a, anything in the in the your daily life that is still going to be the kind of thing that is thought of as bringing joy it ends up being you know not considered appropriate for this particular time of year um which as i say i, I already have found it to be grim this daf is grim the the recollection of this historical period is grim and the season when we get there in our calendar year is as well yeah and i think these stories really reflect it particularly the story with the kohanim it's it is a particularly difficult and grim time of year. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Join us tomorrow for our CM at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
5 p.m. in Israel. And until tomorrow, go and learn.